guardilla del poeta es Word, la pesadilla del poeta es Word, el paraíso del poeta es Word, el compromiso del poeta es Word, Word. Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts, a non-profit organization dedicated to challenging and expanding conceptions of human possibility and the home of Station Hill Press. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network and our cover art and theme music is by Havana poet Omar Perez, the author of Cubanology. We're live on Pacifica Radio Network and available on any and all, including your favorite podcast venues. If you want to be in touch, including with any questions, insights, notices of gaffes or blunders, suggestions for future sessions, we are very open to those, as we are to donations to our enterprise. Please write or call us at Station Hill Press or email bc at stationhill.org. And there we go, there we go, there we go. Enjoy, enjoy, enjoy our show. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. Uh, so here's another session of Baffling Combustions. My name is Sam Truett. I am Sparrow. And my name is Andrew McCarran. So picking up where we left off, we were talking about Ericsson. What specific period of our lives is he referring to? The like earliest? Age. Yeah, the first age would be zero through maybe two or three. Wow. Two or three. So um, birth, well, maybe even prenatal existence to um, through toddlerhood. Hmm. That, that's the first psychosocial stage. Again, it's called uh, trust versus basic trust versus mistrust. Mm-hmm. What's the correlation between a dented um, toddlerhood and uh, and becoming a psychopath or a sociopath or, you know, does it lead to those sort of pathologies later in life? Sure, it can. I mean, especially if one is unable to form reciprocal, reciprocally supportive relationships, one right. can self um, chronically isolated. In, in a way that could lead to all sorts of psychological and social um, problems that, if they become habituated, can be expressed in what we call psychopathy, you know, sociopathic behavior. Now, if you didn't believe it was impossible to, like, undo it, uh-huh. it's a real, you know, it's an uphill battle. There really has to be effort on the part mm-hmm. of the subject, supportive community, and a therapeutic process. It's, you know, it's challenging. Yeah. It's an interesting view that the foundation of a fulfilled life, you know, cannot be monetized or can it be monetized? 
I guess hmm. it can be. I'm not sure, but that love is at the root of a whole life. How does, how does Erickson uh, describe uh, future psychosocial health? Largely will be predicted by the quality. I mean, no, but he's coming out of a Freudian tradition, so he, he will tend to emphasize the regressive, will emphasize the past, the early childhood years. But um, that period of time is very, very, very important. I, I teach teenagers, and I've seen all sorts of dysfunction in the adolescent years over my career. You know what kids struggle the most? Irrespective of socioeconomics, kids who are raised just who don't have caring parents who are raised um, entirely by paid staff tend to struggle the most, I found. More so than adopted kids, more so than kids from divorced families. Hmm. You know, and that, that, that seems to confirm some some element of what Eric Erickson said. I, it's funny because when, when uh, Sam was talking about monetizing parenthood, I was thinking uh, the opposite. I was thinking, well, a, a shrewd parent, a shrewd rich parent, which I think this is kind of a tradition, a tradition at least in kind of Agatha Christie type novels. The rich parents realizes they're rich. They're good at making money. They're not good at love. So they hire some very sweet woman who will love their kids and also kind of discipline them, but in a loving way. And that makes up for their own deficiencies. I mean, that was my logic, but I, I don't know if that's true. You seem to be saying it's not true. I think it can. The kids that I had in mind be kids who don't have that continuity where there's an endless number of new nannies and oh, yeah. caregivers. And um, I think if there's some presence that a grandparent or a hired help who's present from very early on through the teenage years, that that's that's key. Hmm. I see. That's interesting. How, did you do you guys feel as if you were born into households where you received love early on, based upon your best sense and memory? I say no. In my case, <clears throat> I would personally say assuredly, yeah. Yes. Ah. And I was a little bit raised by the servants, you know, variously. But not, you know, my mom's uh, love was always very constant and present and affirmative yeah hmm. for me hmm. same here yeah i don't know i don't feel i mean i do generally say that my parents didn't like me but did love me and i do feel that you know if i had to check a box i would say yes they loved me they didn't hate me they didn't non-love me but was it a loving environment absolutely not I mean, that seems clear to me. Loving environment, I can't find. But I did what I did have, I must say, that you just mentioned, was uh, extremely loving grandparents on my uh, father's side. My grandmother used to wash my hair with beer. I think a beer and shampoo combined together. Maybe she would, like, wash it with uh, shampoo and then rinse it with beer, something like that. Nice. And, and she was just, I mean, she was just radiated love for me. And my grandfather, maybe even more than my grandmother, radiated love for me. My mother's parents seemed a little largely oblivious to me. But, you know, with that tenuous, and then I had friendships, like good friends, early on, actually. Even, you know, when I was three. 
Yeah, we've talked about the importance of the establishment of an early philia relationship. Yeah. Mm. The personal love, yeah. The BFF land. And maybe you can't have that if you don't have love from your parents. Maybe I have more love than I'm willing to admit or willing to see. Hmm. That um, Robert Hayden poem, Sunday Morning. Do you know that Robert Hayden poem? Oh, I don't know it. About uh, the father getting up um, yeah. early in the morning yeah. to stoke fire. Yeah, here, yeah. here it is. I, I just think it speaks to what we're talking about in terms mm. of a love that isn't necessarily like um, so verbally in your face. Doesn't need to affirm itself. It's sort of part of the background. Mm. Uh, children respond to it. And maybe this um, would be descriptive of Sparrow's household. Maybe not. Growing up, that is. Here it is. Those Winter Sundays by Robert Hayden. Sundays, too, my father got up early and put his clothes on in the blue-black cold. Then with cracked hands that ached from labor, in the weekday weather made, banked fires blaze. No one ever thanked him. I'd wake and hear the cold splintering, breaking. When the rooms were warm, he'd call, and slowly I would rise and dress, fearing the chronic angers of that house, mm. speaking indifferently to him, who had driven out the cold, and polished my good shoes as well. What did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? Hmm. Sweet. It's a nice poem. When is that? What yeah. year was that written? Um, in the mid '60s, I believe. Huh. I think it came out. I think it was first published in the mid '60s. Love's austere huh. and what? Love's austere and lonely offices. <laughs> mm. That's that. It's third interesting. Type of love, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. It's interesting for me in that it is the intersection between filial love and storge. A sense of mm. obligation to ritual and ceremony. Mm. Um, so these different forms of love uh, intersect, and that those intersections are mm. interesting events. I think maybe in language and otherwise. Mm. Mm. Yeah, but Erickson doesn't talk about love. Does he use the word love? No, um, but what he what he does describe, I believe, is a love of sorts. I mean, love may come up, but he couches it more in terms of trust. Uh-huh. That the ability to trust, which I believe is a consequence of feeling loved, hmm. that an openness, hmm. an ability to be vulnerable, um, hmm. the, I, the, the expectation that if you're, you're suffering, someone will help you, is all hmm. I see, right. This yeah, feeling so, of security, really. Yeah, security, uh, being safe, being um, noticed. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Etymologically, the um, derivation of our word love, you know, is in a family of these Germanic languages. But the Proto-Indo-European means care, desire, and then, you know, more broadly, you know, what we would call love. Lube, 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 lube. And then <laughs> the different, yeah. And then there's luba, 
you know, which means love. Lufian, German for love. And lob, praise. Those are all, you know, in this kind of love family. Um, and they all have a similar sound. And I think that's interesting in that there's this family resemblance sonically to the nature of love. But is there something inherent to the sound that evokes the state that we recognize as love? That sort of lullaby. Oh. <laughs> And a feeling of reaching toward the vowel, you know, kind of a, a safe, soft reaching in that mm. sound. Yeah, my grandmother, the one I was just talking about, her name in Yiddish was Liba, which could be huh. from the Yiddish love, which is something like Lieb, or it could be from the Hebrew Lev, which means heart. So uh I think it's etymologically, uh, last I knew it was etymologically impossible to separate the, the 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 word for heart in Hebrew and the word for love in uh, in uh, German. So uh, that that does fit into your theory, although mm. you know I'm sure there's whatever forty thousand languages where love has a different uh, sound. Like the only one that I know is French. Hmm. Uh, it's amour. And in Spanish, it's amour. Hmm. But that sense also of care is present in the, in love. To take care, you know, reflecting back on this early stage of our development and its importance. That it is a form of love. Interesting that love also sounds a lot like the word leave. Like love them and leave them. Uh, that uh, that maybe leaving is a type of love in some unknowable way. Well, to quote David Foster Wallace, every love story is a ghost story. Is a ghost story? Yeah. <laughs> in terms of loving and leaving. Or oh, that there's like a ghost that remains from the love or something. Yeah. Every love story is a ghost story. I don't. I don't know what that means. <laughs> Maybe all love stories are true stories, and as Hemingway said, all true stories end in death. Oh, really? Think about that one. Doesn't seem true. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. Speaking of which. I was thinking about our last session on the void, and I was feeling drawn toward the proposition that love is the opposite of void. Hmm. That love um, is the opposite of void, of of a certain kind of void, that kind of emptiness. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I I, uh, have felt love and emptiness simultaneously, I have to say, you know, particularly at the end of the story. When, you know, you're still dancing with the ghost. Yeah. And then, uh, do you guys want to hear more? Yeah. 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 And then I was thinking love is the void filled. Is that the void that we, that love fills the void and that 
love is the void filled. I mean, one could speculate on that, perhaps. And then the final one that I came to is that, that love is the inside of the void. And that, huh. that love and the void are like follow a convex, concave structure, similar, Sparrow, to what you'd said about the piece of paper. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking of that, right. That yeah. they can't be separated like a piece right. of paper. Like nirvana is samsara, love is void, void is love. They're opposites, but they're kind of united in yeah. their yeah, opposite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something like that. Yeah, and the, to turn the void into love is a process of um, chiasma, like a reversal. You know, that when you're feeling a deep love, there's also a sense, you know, of feeling void, I remember. feeling the emptiness. And you go deep into the void, you know, then at its apogee, then, you know, it becomes love. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. And then, yeah. And then finally, I wanted to reference again the Spanish early love mystic poet, Andrew. St. John of the Cross. St. John of the Cross. And that, and that phrase that he has in the poem, you know, none appeared. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it could just as easily have been love appeared. And that becomes the expression of none, seemingly sort of erotically joining that has an erotic uh, timbre. I'm really intrigued by all of that. I mean, you've said a lot. I'm really interested in this notion of love and void interpenetrating, or, uh, so to speak. Huh. Um, or, you know, being opposite sides of the same point. I remember um, my first vacation with Elisa. My wife, we, we went down to New Mexico and sleeping together in a bed in a motel outside of Santa Fe, mm. feeling love and warmth and security and, and waking up to go to the bathroom and looking outside over this just breathing plane in the, the light of dawn and freaked out and bringing that feeling back to bed. Freaked out by the like desolateness of it, like? Yeah. Outside. I just, mm. I knew on some level it, Love wouldn't shield me from that. That, mm -hmm. that was going to continue and be part of it. Right, right. That first moment where you recognize the sort of limits of love as a, uh, as a protection. Funny that we are finding ourselves talking about protection, security, and safety a lot without, uh, you know, intrinsically Without what's the word uh, specifically saying that that's what love is, but it does seem to be these are associations that that we have kind of unconsciously. Uh, I w I wonder whether the fact that we're in a pandemic might hmm. influence the direction in which the current has fallen into. Um, similar to, you know, the way people, as you've pointed out, Andrew, are dreaming more about being invaded, being bodily invaded. Yeah, mm. well, it's certainly plausible. You mean that like we're all seeking that security and safety yeah. from, uh, from 
the disease that's prowling around out the window, the way the uh, desert was prowling around outside your uh, motel room. I think that a lot of problems in love relationships occur um, when uh, it, people get mad that the love experience doesn't protect them from uh-huh. a void or whatever it is that's lurking in the shadows, darkness of the mm-hmm. Huh. That the door that love shares with the void, that the, that the entrance to, to its other aspect is through, um, anger, through hate. Hmm. I think there is something there. I mean, in an infinite number of varieties and combinations. But yeah, I, I suppose I, I do believe that there's something worth investigating. That hatred. What are you saying, Sam? Exactly. That, that anger is the door that 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 allows you to step from love into the void, kind of. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's fairly speculative, but interesting, I guess. I mean, yeah. you love somebody, and then you're really mad at that person whom you love, mm. and that there's a feeling of the emptiness in that in that anger which Mm. has the taste of the void Mm. well certainly you can be in love and i think we've all experienced this and then you suddenly really out of nowhere some stupid minuscule problem you know, uh, sparks a giant argument and suddenly you've fallen into the void. A minute ago you were happily in love, lying in bed, nuzzling each other. Now you can't stand each other. It's yeah. it's a weird uh, experience that is a little bit like falling through emptiness, at least in my memory of it. I mean, my wife and I have sort of stopped fighting, unfortunately, so... I can only remember. You don't have an opportunity to investigate. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Unfortunately. Well, just that, you know, maybe it's good to have fights. Maybe it's a sign of vitality in a relationship. Mm. Uh, hard to know what it is. Really. I do think that, you know, relationships do need some kind of avenue for blowing off steam. Um, yeah. You know, they can't, otherwise they sort of suffocate. You know, you need an inside and an outside. And if you don't have an easy way out, then, you know, you, then things, um, become unstable and you have like explosive rage. I mean, what happens is, uh, Humor, you know, we've developed as a couple. I mean, as you may have noticed, I have like a highly overactive sense of humor, but my wife generally has no sense of humor. And, uh, but as a couple, we've developed a sense of humor so that we can, that's one way that we, uh, maybe the main way, the only way maybe that we get rid of our tensions is by just admitting how annoying we are. You know, my wife said to me the other day, she said, I know this is a small thing, but there's like a little sliver of soap. I'm too cheap to throw away this soap, which I got for free from the food pantry to begin with. And it says dial on it on one side and the other side is blank. And because it's such a 
tiny sliver, the side that says dial is kind of like grimy looking. It's not dirty, but it's kind of ugly looking, at least to her eyes. And she just wants me to flip it over and make sure that the nice white side is is showing, not the grimy side. You and like, as she's telling us uh, to me, like we're both cracking up. I mean, it's it's absurd. You were in like hell no. Yeah. Yeah, you and your goddamn... I may have said I'm <laughs> sick of your goddamn yourself. <laughs> but I mean, I said it as a joke. Because she really is not much of a nagger. So, you know, that was... It became a sort of a bond between us that we could both admit that that is absurd, neurotic of her to worry about it. But who am I to call her neurotic? My neuroses are... I have a suspicion, you know, towering compared to hers. So, you know, we just accept, all right, we're going to discuss this. And I'm going to try the best that I can. In fact, I already knew it. She'd mentioned it to me before. So I told her, you know, believe me, I've tried very hard to keep the right side of that soap up. But, you know, I fail sometimes. It's how it is. I've got a new um, aphorism. Oh. Sparrow. Yeah, love is on just the other side of the dial. (laughs) Certainly, what's the word, uh, applicable to uh, this uh, circumstance. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, dial, it used to be TVs had dials. And I think that was kind of part of the compelling call behind television. It's sort of, uh, Mm. you know, love is on just the other side of the dial. A lot of the issue with televisions was who's going to get up and change the channel. Right. now a a consensus in the room. We're sick of Gomer Pyle. We want to watch Ben Casey. Who's going (laughs) to effectuate that change? And I think generally, at least in my family, which was kind of hierarchical, it would sort of fall to the youngest person. The person with the least power had to, you know, very laborious. You know how you're watching TV? You don't really want to move. You kind of forget you have a body. Very unpleasant to be reminded that you have arms and legs. And so it's, so that, that would become a big um, job. Just have to pull yourself up, haul yourself up, go to the dial and change it. But also that's an expression of love. Well, or is it? I mean, how does, hard to say. I mean, I think that, I think this is a problem that we really have not confronted. It's very easy to refer to everything as a form of love, to say, you know, uh, doing the dishes is love, walking down the street is love. I think things like changing the channel on the television Mm -hmm. could fall under storge, you know, that sense of obligation. Um, Yeah. I'm I'm giving Storge, you know, two thumbs up. Did you disappear, Sam? I don't know. I I think that was one of our uh, the shadow of death, you know, passing over us. I did have two poems. Um, I think this is going to be several podcasts. (laughs) I did select a poem about the beginning of love, and I selected a poem about the end of love. Oh. Oh, nice. Yeah to get some boundaries. The first one was a poem that I mentioned to you before we started recording. 
Love Three by the metaphysical poet and Anglican priest George Herbert. Oh, uh, yeah. And then the, uh, the poem that I selected about, I don't know if end is the right word, the removal of love, let's just put it that way, is a poem by Charles Bukowski that I have always loved, even though I had mixed feelings about his work. Mm-hmm. But I've always loved this poem, but I'm, I'm not sure I want to read it on the podcast. Oh. Um, oh. But I think I, I think I will anyway, actually. Um, which, yeah. Yeah, I think I will. Which would you like to hear? We should start go with the beginning. Okay. Um, you know, and maybe we could talk about that state. Okay. I like this um, this poem by George Herbert. Um, I always have known about it for maybe 15, 20 years at this point. And I, I like it because uh, love is not um, tethered to another person. Mm. It's more of an orientation in the world. And to a degree, it's a choice. Uh, mm. Reminds me of what uh, the founder of the Catholic Worker, Peter Morin, said. Uh, if, if, if you go someplace and love doesn't exist, you put love there. Mm. And you make a decision to put love where there is no love. Um, I'm paraphrasing. I don't remember the exact quotation. It comes from one of his many easy essays that are available. Here's Love 3 by George Herbert. Are you ready to hear the poem? Yes. Love 3. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack, for my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, all, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then, I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. That's it. From the 18th century. Love. Nice. That's a great poem. I, I, I really um, appreciate the meat. Um, yeah, that, that is a beautiful love. Uh, adjustment you know like at the end you know i did sit down and uh enjoy the meat her meat the meat the it's very striking yeah i guess in this age where meat eaters feel very guilty about eating meat that uh, that love would serve you meat it's kind of a just an amazing thought i don't know this poem at all i don't really i've never seen it i mean from a modern perspective it reminds me of an internal conversation mm-hmm at the end of which, where one decides to um, to receive love, that it's not it's not so much that love cannot be found, which is how the predicament is often couched. Hard to find love anywhere. I've looked everywhere. I can't find love. No one, no one will love me. You know, it's the, the quandary existentially is the ability to receive it, and there's a choice that's made by the uh, the poet speaker to sit down and eat. And there's something about that that resonates with me, even if I have a hard time enacting it on a personal level. Yeah. It's very unclear what he means by love. You know, how much this is some kind of purely 
spiritual love, how much it's actually some form of romantic love or even self-love since he says, right? There's, he says, mm-hmm. but there's only me around. And love says, that's okay. That's enough. Yeah, he says, well, if I lacked anything, a guest, I answered, worthy to be here. And, you know, love says, look, you shall be he. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to be the guest. Yeah. It's like that uh, movie. What is it called? It's the movie we're about the based on the orchid thief. It's one of those um, movies written by that guy Kaufman, yeah, Charlie adap- Kaufman. Adaptation. Adaptation. That's what okay. it's called. That's one of the few movies I I must have watched a dozen times. So you know this amazing scene where where the guy, the kind of hapless hero, is saying he's talking about how madly he in love he was with some gorgeous girl in high school. And the girl completely spurned him. And one day he realized, I am so much richer than her because she has only her scorn and I have my love. She can't destroy my love for her. It's, hmm. it's a, it's a great um, treasure that I own. Some, you know, I'm wildly paraphrasing it. I only saw the movie once. But it's a terrific illustration of the relationship between the love and the void. Mm, yeah, perhaps that kind of love that exists uh, across the board. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I guess my question, Andrew, is how exactly what's the setup on the poem? I was a little bit unclear. I mean, it had to do with the love and soul, right? Complicated poem because there are no quotation marks in the poem. Uh, if this was purposeful, it's hard to tell who's speaking. If it's the uh, the poet speaker, or if it's love, and love turns out to be the Lord by the third stanza. Um, the soul yeah. is the poet speaker. Yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. A quick-eyed love observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, oh, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred then. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. I know you not, says love, who bore the blame. My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my eat. So I did sit and eat. So it's, it is God. Did sit and eat? What about the meat? What happened no, to I the said, meat? Sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did <laughs> sit and eat. You really could read this as a poem about Fellatio. Uh, Fellatio? Fellatio? Oh, that's funny that you mentioned that, because once this was read aloud uh, at chapel at Trinity School, and it uh, evoked just a ripple of snicker. Yeah. Oh, in high school, you mean? Yeah, it was that. You can taste my meat, so I did sit and eat. And there was yeah. this, taste up. my meat is a little bit like something you would say to like some guy that like cut you off yeah. uh, when you're driving. Like taste, taste my, my meat. meat, sucker. I kind of preferred it. I thought it was an instance, uh, Sparrow, in which Herbert had taken Ted Berrigan's advice <laughs> and like left last line out. Yeah, because it's a stronger poem, I think. Um, just, uh, you know, taste my meat. <laughs> I, I figured you'd say that. 
I, yeah. I don't agree, but I see what you're saying. It, it is, it's in a way the strongest line in the poem. It's not a sonnet. It's uh, three stanzas of six lines each. Ah, okay. It's a funny uh, uh, one line less, more or less, more wouldn't a, make too much 14, difference. Yeah. It's 16 lines plus a couplet. Is that what you said? Uh, six, 18 lines. Yeah. So it's four, four plus a, yeah, I wrote one of those recently because I got lost while writing a sonnet and I, I didn't realize where I was and I ended up adding an extra, uh, quarto. What do you call the extra verse, I guess? Extra, um, um, quatrain? Quatrain, that's it, yeah. But what's really interesting about Love 3 is that at the beginning, the dialogue, um, different um, speaking roles are on different lines. And then by the end, um, he's practicing enjambment. So one speaking line will end and then Love will say something that will, will begin on the same line. Yeah, which it seems like was unusual back then. Yeah, I mean, George Herbert does have a reputation for being an experimental formulist as far as the 17th century poets go. Um, mm. Like he wrote a poem, Shape of Windows. And- so there's the kind of mixing that's going on in terms of the interlocutors. Uh, formally speaking, they're not distinguished by enchantment, but they're, you know, it's a fluid <laughs> state, so they're mixing. Yeah, it's so a good point. I love. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it, from the very beginning, we know of a quick eyed love observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, but by the end of the poem, love has been invited in and is unified in the, um, the poet speaker. No, and love. then also there's a kind of pure couplet that ends it. The formal, uh, distinction, the enjambment ends and, and as the confusion ends, kind of. <laughs> Mm. Once he's eating that meat. I think one I'd like to, if I may, interject something from the beginning of sort of the ride that, you know, of the wave of Western Civ, you know, that we're cresting at right now. And, um, you know, I'd like to read a poem by Sappho from oh. the Isle of Lesbos. Um Greek poet, I guess, 8th century, arguably, um, BC. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so this is, this is an experience of the onset of love. So it's a little bit in the family with Herbert, I think. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, like with the, what we have of Sappho, it's, you know, kind of fragmentary a little bit, but actually not. It goes like this. Love shook my heart like the wind on the mountain troubling the oak trees whoa can you read that again sure love shook my heart like the wind on the mountain troubling the oak trees Mm, great i came up with this theory this literary theory recently that that sappho was a really bad poet but just by chance, all the bad parts of her poems were lost and all the great parts remained. So she seems like the greatest poet who ever lived. Because it seems like this is it seems like this is a fragment of a larger poem, seems to me. But really works as a kind of haiku. Yeah. I mean it's it's interesting in that love and the heart 
we're already, you know, in, entwined that the sense of love is as related to the heart hmm. um, is already present. It's one thing I would say. I mean, maybe that seems pretty idiotic thing to say. I don't know. No, 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 no. Yeah. And then, you know, I just think that the open, big, natural metaphor and with the sense of, um, you know, this uh, echo that only exists in the mind of the passage of time between then and now, you know, but the big frank simile, you know, like the wind on the mountain is interesting. This idea of the uh, the um, heart in love is like the king in war. You know, this idea of this kind of, you know, mountaintop, this sort of majestic right. promontory, you know, that one becomes likened to, um, mm-hmm. you know, this mountain um, landscape. And then, you know, mm. I, I think, you know, where this translation or whatever might fall off, but the idea of troubling the oak trees is interesting, you know, troubling the, the big, strong, well-rooted uh, yeah. oak trees, that which can even survive on the mountain. Mm. Yeah. And wind itself, that love is like a wind. Mm-hmm. Which I think about wind a lot. And I think about the song, The Answer My Friend Is Blowing in the Wind, which I don't really like that song, but I I do like this idea that Dylan is trying to get at, that there's something in the wind, some answer in the wind that is elusive. It's there, it leaves, it moves on. Maybe if you grow up in the rural Minnesota, you have a sense of the power of the wind. I know when I moved to the country, uh, I suddenly became acutely aware of uh, the sound of the wind and the power, the physical strength of the wind. Well, the wind is connected to the pneuma, to spirit, um, Mm. you know, animation, spirit, to expire, etc., inspire, expire. My friend Misha Ringland, he wrote a poem when he was young, in his 20s. And I'd like to recite that, if I may, because it relates to the uh, to the wind. Yeah. Mm. yeah. It goes like this. I am a field of candles, and you, you hold the wind in your hands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's an interesting, you know, I guess sort of more on that kind of the tactile nature of love, Um, you know, Mm. and a little bit like Petrarch, you know, that idea of the burning, you know, a field of candles, but the, but also that sense of sensuality um, of the wind and how vulnerable a field of candles is and how the wind is like, it's a caressing, you know, this field of candles, this Mm. trembling, you know, I thought it was pretty good. Present there is also danger. I mean, beyond sort of blowing the flames in a pleasant way, flames can be extinguished by the wind, and the wind could also blow the candles, the flames, into a terrible brush fire. <laughs> there, there's an implicit danger. <laughs> On current, yeah, that's interesting. The caress. So that image does carry a lot of imagined possibility. Mm. Right. Makes you wonder who the you is. 
thing? Seems like someone he's in love with across the void. You know, one thing that occurs to me relative to, like, that trembling that Misha's poem seems to point toward, you hold the wind in your hand, a field of candles. And then also, I guess maybe even the Sappho poem about troubling the oak trees. You know, there's that sort of, that sense of waveringness, that sort of almost like a a trembling, like a involuntary, like trembling, like spasming or, you know, that Mm. kind of instability. It reminds me of uh, Dante, of a line from Dante uh, from, I think, his Nuevo, Nuevo Vita, Nuevo Vito, Nuevo, you know, new life you know, where he goes into the exigencies of his adoration of Beatrice. And there's a line in there um, that stuck with me, and that is this sentence, or this part, this fragment of a sentence, I guess it might be, and not a dram of my blood that was not trembling. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that like the dram, like a, a little, a short, um, like a shot glass of blood. I don't know exactly what a dram is. But all of his blood, even like down to like a shot glass or, you know, even down to the maybe uh, kind of microscopic microbial level was trembling. <clears throat> this idea of the blood trembling is, is such an interesting um, association, I feel. Mm. Yeah. And I and I guess if I were to continue on with that, I might talk about also the fact that Dante was the recipient of the activities and the poetics of the troubadours. Mm. And the troubadours in turn were activated through the influence of the Muslim influence through the Sephardic, through not Sephardic Jewish population, but it was actually the Moors, I guess, who introduced the form of the Alba, who introduced these different romantic, erotically tinged metaphors into poetry that the troubadours picked up and kind of ran with, and which then Petrarch, the Italian Petrarch, in his cycle of sonnets dedicated to Laura, Laura, incorporated. And then it was from Petrarch that Dante, you know, began to manifest, like Dante comes out of Petrarch, if you could say that. And Mm -hmm. so it's just interesting from that standpoint that I think, you know, this idea of of the love poem, of the sonnet, of the charged field, the charged poetic field um, having its basis in love is inscribed into Western Sith. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thanks to the Muslim. Yeah. Yeah, I've always thought, I don't know, but it's my opinion or guess that um, 
that love, the concept of romantic love that you're talking about that we have in the West, <clears throat> ultimately emerges from the bhakti tradition in India, the idea of the devotee who's in love with God, which is also the, uh, like Radha is in love with Krishna, who's her husband, her the prince, she's the queen, or he's the king, maybe. And uh, their love is both erotic, but ultimately mystical. Ultimately, it's all about loving God in the form of the beloved. And then I suspect that that entered into Middle Eastern Muslim uh, poetry and then into Western poetry. Because mm. even in Dante, there's a kind of a confusion between is Beatrice a person or is she kind of an emanation of God? Because right. she died very young. She goes to heaven and uh, he meets her in heaven where she's enthroned, if I remember correctly, in the, in the uh, Divine Comedy. And she's sort of a combination of a person and uh, the Holy Mother, the... Uh, Divine Feminine, the Mother of God. Mm-hmm. And they're both kind of tied up with aspiration. And there's yeah. a ambiguity between the sacred and profane or secular. And with true love. devotion, like, you know, my guru tells the story of, I don't know if I ever told this story, where uh, this pure devotee, she loves Krishna. She's a woman. She's absolutely enthralled he's the greatest love of her life and one day he comes to her house to her little hut and she offers him bananas that's which is all she has and krishna says certainly i will take the bananas so she's peeling the bananas and offering them to krishna but she's so in love so dazzled by love by this actual the the object of her love is there in front of her, that she mistakenly offers the skins of the banana instead of the fruit of the banana. And uh, Krishna accepts this as the highest offering, the offering of true devotion, because mm. she's so in love, she doesn't even know what she's doing. Mm. And this is refers to our lives, that we all have our the good side of ourselves, that we want to devote to God, our sort of kind, selfless, genuine part and we don't want to give the skins the cruelties and selfishness that we also have but mm. god prefers it if we selflessly offer the, the very worst part of ourselves out of pure love so it's, mm -hmm. it's it's all about offering and giving in my mind it's 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 you know it's not an erotic love where that's consummated by a kind of mutuality it's kind of the the giving is is the whole love you don't need mm. even a response kind of from the uh the beloved and beatrice probably didn't even know dante existed or barely was aware of him mm. and and those uh, those provencal uh, romantic singers that are in madly in love with some woman She's inaccessible and distant, and mm -hmm. she's a princess or something. You know, it's not a it's not a love. It's not exactly mutual. I think it's more about this uh, 
divine offering. Yeah, it's kind of part of the chevalier servant, the Mm -hmm. uh, gentleman's servant, and the idea of the ideal love. But that idea of giving also also reminds me of that, you know, my favorite kind of, um, one of my favorite quotes from the New Testament, you know, where um, Jesus is explaining the nature of giving, and he's, you know, of true giving. And in that state of true giving, left hand does not know what the right hand mm. is doing. You know, yeah. a little bit like that banana, like, yeah. you know, you don't even know that you're giving the peels. Mm. You're so, mm. so immune, you're in, in the zone, you know, in, in the love zone in the dimension of love in which cause and effect and all the aspects of dualities mm. dissolve, you know? Yeah. I, you become you become the beloved in a way. Yeah. Mm. I think it's important to point out the corollary that uh, this heightened love that you describe, if it is consummated, um in humanly form, I, I think there, there will be disequilibration. I, I, I think the, the, uh, I guess the, uh, the beloved will always fall short or the human element will, will lead to a losing of the love. There's, there's something, um, supernatural about it. Be, um, you know, that can't, something that can't be, uh, touched. Mm-hmm. In perpetuity. It's going to be a forever receding horizon. Mm. And I guess, you know, we have to, I think, admit that a lot of this kind of is the structure of the, what do I mean, the psychological structure of the patriarchy, that in a sense, the woman is both repressed, uh, secluded, kept away from daily life, Mm. idealized. Uh, all at once, you know, the, the, the oppression of women is the idealization of women. You can't, uh, separate the two. The, uh, the feminine mystique that, uh, Simone de Beauvoir is talking about, which I never read, I'm just guessing what it is, <laughs> is, I think, about this, about sort of turning women into ideas, in a sense. Uh huh. Mm hmm. But I do think that the, art, the larger point is a good one that um, if you stick around long enough in love, mm-hmm. with erotic love, romantic love, uh, the beloved will um, probably uh, disappoint or will not be able to contain the um, the sacred, the mm-hmm. infinite um, post consummation. I think that there's something there that's um, intriguing. Hmm. You know, when you when you when you when you start to learn someone else's shadow, or you know, when you you, you get to know someone through love and you become aware of contradictions, there's mm-hmm. always a disappointment, a letdown. If there's this expectation and yearning for um, the infinite, for the ultimate, for the oceanic. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, there's some some uh, some. I read some movie star or rock star who said 
you look at some gorgeous woman in People magazine, and <clears throat> this guy says, you immediately think there's some guy who's sick of having sex with her. And uh, that, that was like his, uh, whatever, axiom of human life. But I, I mean, I think that really, I mean, we're sort of getting, in my mind, to the sort of center of what love really is. Because in a way, it's good to start with this idealized, romanticized, um, spiritualized love. Because once that is shattered, let's say, then you have two choices. You know, you're left with a real human being that you've just slept with, and you can be repelled, decide that she's not ideal, not this spiritual perfection that you imagined, or you can begin to investigate, well, who is this person? Who is this real person? The person mm. beneath the shell of idealization. Turns out she's a person a lot like you. <laughs> you know, she or he, you know, is, mm -hmm. is uh, in some ways extraordinary, in some ways uh, disappointing, in some ways uh, surprising, weird, has some kind of crazy habits you never met before in anybody. Mm. Yeah. You know, like my wife who hates okra, barley, uh, you know, she has like certain foods, eggplant, you know, gelatinous mm. foods that she detests. And it's sort of, I wonder what's going on with that. What is it about gelatinous stuff she can't handle? Then she'll go to a restaurant where they really know how to make eggplant and she'll love it. Mm. And I'm like, well, I have to rethink this. <laughs> mm. Thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time, and remember to stay tuned and strange.